Our second reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20, beginning with verse 1. It's a, one of the parables of Jesus, one of the parables that we've probably heard many, many times, but one that I hope that we get to hear anew this morning. Let us listen for and hear God's holy word. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for for the usual daily wage, he sent them into the vineyard. When he went out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. When he went out again about noon, and about three o'clock, he did the same. And about five o'clock, he went out and found others standing around, and he said to them, Why are you standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. When those hired about five o'clock came, each of them received the usual daily wage. Now when the first came, they thought they would receive more I'm sorry, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received the usual daily wage. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to the last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May your good news come, O Lord, not only in the words spoken, but in and through the power of your Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Amen. Henry Ford, the great American icon, said, an honest day's work for an honest day's wage. That's what he believed. That's what the U.S. Department of Labor believes. That's what we believe. It's not, though, what Jesus believes, nor what the Bible tells us, and therein, lies the problem. The first will be last and the last will be first, Jesus says, and it flies in the face of everything we hold to be true about the way the universe works. It challenges the central and sacred assumption by which most of us live our lives, namely that the front of the line is the best place to be and that the way to get God's attention is to be the best person the hardest worker, the first one into the graveyard, or the first one into the vineyard in the morning, and the last one to leave at night. We call it the Protestant work ethic, and it comes straight out of the mouth of John Calvin himself. And right now, during the fall, is traditionally the time of year that I often get to think about Calvin in some depth. I think about Calvin as I prepare for training our new officers for their upcoming terms of service as I did this past Wednesday. 
And Calvin comes up in conversation with Diana at the start of every school year because she teaches his theology to her English classes at Webb to discuss the Puritans as they prepare to read books like The Scarlet Letter and The Crucible. Last week, my conversation with Diana led me to look back at a theology book from my seminary days, which, coincidentally, was just a few days before sitting down to study this passage in preparation for this sermon. So lucky you, you all get to hear some Calvinist theology today. (laughs) Calvin taught that to work is the will of God. Our duty as Christians, he believed, is to serve as God's instruments here on earth, reshaping the world to resemble the kingdom of God and playing part in the ongoing process of God's creation. Choosing an occupation and pursuing it to achieve the greatest profit possible was considered by Calvinists to not only be permissible, but our religious duty. Central to Calvin's thought was the doctrine of double predestination, the the belief that some people, the elect, were chosen by God to inherit eternal life. Others, the reprobate, were relegated to eternal damnation, and nothing we do can change that. While it was impossible to know for certain whether you were one of the elect, Calvin believed that evidence could be seen in your daily life and in your work and in your deeds. So success in one's worldly accomplishments was a sign of possible inclusion. Calvin taught that a person who was idle and indifferent and most and indifferent was most certainly one of the reprobate. But a person who was active and hardworking, showing promise, and they were probably one of God's chosen. Which makes sense, right? Only according to today's parable, and Jesus himself, where this Protestant work ethic will get us is exactly nowhere. According to today's passage, those who work the least will not only be rewarded as much as those who work the most, but they'll be rewarded first. And as a minister trained in the Reformed tradition, and more importantly, the oldest child, I can tell you, that's not fair. In fact, it's just flat out wrong. Early in the morning, a landowner goes to the marketplace, to the corner where those without steady jobs go to hang out. And he hires a handful of them to work in the vineyard that day. The landowner offers to pay them a denarius, which in Jesus' day is a fair day's wage. And they all agree. But by nine in the morning, it's clear that there's more work than this first group can do themselves. So the landowner goes back to the corner again, and then again at noon, and then again at three, and brings more workers back each time and promises to pay them what's right. Finally, at five in the afternoon, with only an hour left before quitting time, the landowner goes back to the corner and finds a few more unemployed laborers still hanging around. Rounding them up, they head back to the vineyard where they help the others finish up the day's work. Well, six o'clock rolls around and the landowner tells the manager to line up all the workers so that he can hand them each their pay. Beginning with the last to be hired, each one in that group receives a denarius, 
roughly the equivalent of a day's work at minimum wage today. Anything less would have meant that the workers' families would be hungry and homeless. Not a lot, but just enough. An honest day's wage for an honest day's work. And then, when the rest of the workers take notice of what's going on up at the front, they think something miraculous is about to happen. If the one-hour workers get a denarius, how much are the 12-hour workers going to get? Word and excitement start to travel like wildfire down the line through the rest of the work crew. They start doing the math in their head, but before they can come up with the answer, the manager makes it to the end, handing each one of them their pay. One denarius. One denarius. One denarius. Their excitement very quickly turns to righteous indignation. These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, they say. Their faces, I'm sure, red, seething with anger. You've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. That's not fair, they say. Like all of us, the laborers have a deeply rooted understanding of what's fair and what's not. Equal pay for equal work is fair. Equal pay for unequal work is not. One commentator suggested that the place to start with Jesus' parable is to say what it's not about. It's not a lesson in corporate economics or an example of how employers, even Christian employers, are to treat their employees. Any company that paid workers hired in December the same amount as those who had worked the full 12 months would have difficulty finding anyone to staff the office from January to November. Any teacher who gave an A to the student who registered on the last day of class would face a justified uprising from those who showed up for the full semester and did all the required assignments. The point of the parable is not to provide a practical guide for managing a vineyard or an office or a classroom. To run a business this way is completely impractical. It's unthinkable and it's absurd. But that, I think, is exactly the point. The absurdity is meant to challenge our assumptions. The point is to shatter all our careful calculations about how things ought to be ordered in the world. The point is to say that by God's grace, the calculations are not based on what we deserve, but on the owner's generosity. The Jewish Talmud, in the Jewish Talmud, the rabbis tell a very similar story. A king hires laborers to work in his fields. Two hours after they begin, the king inspects their work. He sees that there is one worker who far surpasses the others in skill and productivity. So he takes that laborer by the hand and spends the rest of the day walking around the estate with him, not working, but talking. At the end of the day, the king calls all the laborers to receive their wages. Everyone's paid exactly the same amount, including the one who worked for only two hours. Not surprisingly, the others are furious. We've worked the whole day, and this man only two hours, yet you've paid him the full day's wage. The king replies, I've not wronged you. 
This man has done more in two hours than you've done during the whole day. It's a very similar story. In fact, it's likely a story that Jesus knew when he told his story. It's different only in one way. In the rabbi's story, the laborer has earned his wages. He's done more than all the rest. In Jesus' story, at the end of the day, some of the workers have done nothing to earn a full day's wage. They receive it entirely because of the generosity of their employer. That's the only difference, but it's a critical difference. It's the difference between the world of merit and the world of grace. It's the difference between us and God. I have nothing against hard work. In fact, I do a lot of it myself. I don't want you to walk out of here this morning and tell the rest of Knoxville that the Presbyterian minister downtown is opposed to hard work. But the problem with the Protestant work ethic is that it can so quickly disintegrate into what we call works righteousness. That is, believing that I can work and earn God's favor by what I do. The harder I work, the more God will love me. What this parable is meant to tell us is that God's love for us is based in no way on what we can do or how much we produce or what we deserve. God's love for us, God loves us whether we're in the fields before sunup or still standing around in the unemployment office at closing time. God loves us simply because of who we are, not because of what we do. There's a story that I like to tell, and I know some of you have heard, it, heard me tell it already, and I'm sorry, but I can't help myself. Doug was the college pastor at First Presbyterian Church in Berkeley when I attended Cal. The college group met every Wednesday night for food and for fellowship and for worship. And each week at the end of every worship service, Doug gave the benediction and always said exactly the same thing. He would tell us to stand up, grab hands, and make one big circle, and we would sing the last verse of Amazing Grace. You know, when we've been there 10,000 years. And every single week, when we were done singing, he would then say, there's nothing that you can do to make God love you any more or any less than God loves you right now. And beloved, there is nothing you can do to make God love you any more or any less than God loves you right now. God's love is wasteful and reckless and unfair, and that, my friends, is the point. God is not fair. For reasons we may never understand, God's, God loves us indiscriminately and seems to get a kick out of turning our well-ordered world upside down on its head, reversing all the elaborate systems we've constructed to explain why we think God loves some of us, some of us more than others. Starting at the end of the line, though, the landowner reminds us God's ways are not our ways. God is not fair. But depending on where you are in the line, 
that might sound like overwhelmingly good news. Because if God's not fair, then there's at least a chance that our paychecks will reflect more hours than we actually worked. And we might get more than we deserve. Or maybe better yet, we won't get what we do in fact deserve. If God's not fair, then it might matter less who we are and what we've done than who God is and what God has done. God is not fair. God is generous. And if we resent that generosity, it's only because we've forgotten where we stand and whose vineyard it is in the first place. God is not fair. God's merciful. Because there's nothing we can do to make God love us any more or any less than God loves us right now. God is not fair. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let us turn to God in prayer. God of the mountaintops and God of the valleys, God of the bright moments of life and God of the thick darkness, God in whom we live and breathe and have our being, walk with us now as we lift our prayers to you. Calm our thoughts, our hearts, and send us the peace of your spirit that we might discern your wisdom and truth. God of the sick, the broken, and the dying, remember those, your people, who are broken in body and spirit, those who live with illness or injury and chronic pain, mental anguish, and those facing the last days of their lives. Surround them in hospitals, hospices, in homes, and all who need your comforting care. We pray for those in our congregation known to us, for Mary Spangler, Libba Wall, and Vance Berkey. Surround them with your presence and heal them as only you can. We remember those saints who have gone before us and have now passed from this life and into the next. We give thanks for their lives, remembering Ely Driver and the love he shared with us. Remind Phyllis and his loved ones and us that you embrace us in both life and death, for we are totally and completely yours. Greet us in our grief and turn our lament into hope. God of the orphan, the refugee, the forgotten, the homeless, and the war-torn, our eyes, our hearts, and our hands encounter so much that is dark, that is broken and unjust. We are guilty of negligence, ignorance, complicity in broken systems, and walking by the poor and the abandoned and not seeing your face in all those we encounter. Too often we seek violence over peace, power over love, and hatred over mercy. We fear so much, including each other. We fear those we do not know, forgetting how we were once strangers in a strange land and you first called us back to love and mercy. We pray for those places in that world that are war-torn, fighting for their lives, living amidst violence and death. And so we pray for places such as Ukraine and Russia, asking that somehow you would transform this war, end it, 
and find a new way forward in peace. Oh God, transform our fear, our sin, and our violence into mercy, love, and peace. Transform those who seek death and violence into bringers of peace. Guide us in your mercy, reminding us that we only are because you are. Convict us to step into the ditches, the darkness, the distasteful, and the disparate, and recognize that every person we encounter is made by you and is therefore worthy and loved. God of extravagant, reckless grace and forgiveness, God beyond word and description, you whom we cannot sufficiently name, but yet you who will never abandon us. Listen to our prayers and listen now in silence those prayers we keep in the depths of our hearts. God of all that binds us together as one in Christ Jesus, hear our prayers and hear now that prayer that Jesus taught us saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let us continue to worship God through our tithes and offerings. <laughs> 